In May 1893, the Tabernacle Choir, in the midst of a national financial crisis, boarded a train with the First Presidency. Their destination? The World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, to perform for the first time on the world stage. In this podcast of Saints, Volume 3, we'll discover how they were received. We'll also hear how Apostle Heber J. Grant miraculously finds financial aid in New York, pulling the church through an economic hardship. And now, Chapter 1, as we prove ourselves ready. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Joining us is Michael Hicks, a Professor Emeritus of Music at Brigham Young University, and Jed Woodworth, the Managing Historian of the Saints Project. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you very much. Well, as I read this chapter, I thought it was a really exciting way to start, being at the World's Fair and having the Tabernacle Choir perform. But I'm just wondering, why was this particular scene chosen to open Saints Volume 3? Great question. Readers of Volume 1 and Volume 2 know that we always open the book with some big event. So Volume 1, it's literally a volcano explosion. And this volcano allows the Smiths to move to New York. In Volume 2, it's a forced exodus from Nauvoo, where 10,000 saints are traveling overland over a thousand miles. They've never done this before. So it's obviously very harrowing and dramatic. Volume three, when we first started outlining this book, I remember in 2015 sitting down with James Goldberg, who's a creative writer, and we sat in front of his computer and we started with chapter one and he said, okay, after the temple is dedicated, what happens in 1893? And I immediately said, well, there's a nationwide panic. There's a depression, the largest depression outside of the Great Depression in U.S. history, and this does affect the church's fortunes in a dramatic way. And then I said, the Tabernacle Choir goes to Chicago and wins a prize. And I said, that's it. That's really the whole year outside of the dedication of the temple. Well, when we came to write the book, the Heber J. Grant debt story of going to New York to locate funding for the church's banks That ended up being the lead scene. And we began it with President Woodruff on his deathbed in late April after he dedicated the Salt Lake Temple. He fell ill and he was on his deathbed, literally. And the brethren actually called in to do his last will. And then he recovered after some priesthood administration and prayer. He was able to recover in five to seven days. So this paragraph about President Woodruff being ill, it led the book. We thought it was dramatic. And then our editor, Nathan Waite, he said to us, you know, it really isn't very dramatic because number one, President Woodruff recovers in a paragraph. The second paragraph of the book, he gets better and then sends off Heber J. Grant to New York. And he said, the other big problem is it doesn't really help us to understand the book as a whole. Because the financial trouble that the church is in, within 15 years, they're out of debt. And of course, by 1955, when volume three ends, we're very much solvent. We're 
using our tithing and our other revenue around the world. So he said, you need something else. And Scott Hales, our literary editor, and I went back to the drawing board. And it was actually Scott's idea to feature Evan Stevens at the front of the book. I'm sure Michael is happy about that decision. And we realized as we talked through this, that this story of a Welsh choir, many of whom are first or second generation immigrants from the old country to Utah, and then going back out to Chicago, it was symbolic of volume three as uh, thematically as the saints going out into the world and having to make do. I mean, it brought in the, the idea of the church's image being transformed by 1920. The church's image is really quite different than it was in 1890 or 1893. And then we also love the idea of an individual performance. It is a group choir, but it's a choir composed of individuals who have to, through their wits, their merit, their practice, their raw talent, they have to perform. And this, we felt like, also was indicative of the period where the Latter-day Saints go out and on the level of the individual, they become many become quite successful. We have a U.S. senator and Reed Smoot who ends up being chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, which is one of the most powerful positions in U.S. government. We have other people who do remarkable things in this period. But we realized over time that this is the story that we needed to tell. This was the dramatic story to open the book. Could I maybe ask, Jed, um, I love in the opening paragraph of this chapter, the description of the Columbian Exposition itself, because it wasn't just being on stage in Chicago or being on stage for a national event. This was a big event for the nation. And it has a sort of parallels to the notion that we talk about from the book of Isaiah and so on of, you know, bringing all your treasures to Zion. And here the feeling was, let's bring the treasures of the world in all kinds of, you know, vernacular and highfalutin veins and put them all together in one place here in Chicago, <laughs> you know, not that far from Nauvoo, by the way. So how do you see in American history, this as a staging ground for the nation, I guess, and then by reflection, the saints. Well, we have to remember that the American nation was still a young nation. It was less than a, a century and a quarter old, mm -hmm. and it still had a lot to prove. It was growing into a wealthy nation, but it was not a nation that was on a par with other European nations in terms of wealth or uh, power or might. So it was still trying to prove itself. There was an insecurity in American culture at this time. In 1876, there was an exposition in Philadelphia where people from around the United States came and brought their inventions. And that was an effort to say, look what we can do. Look how clever we are. And in 1893, it was much of the same, where people from around the world came to this exposition, but many Americans felt like it was their chance to show what we could do. So you had individual states, for example, would bring their fruit that they were able to grow, or their dairy, or their cattle. And it was a way to say, look at us. 
look at what we can create. And the Latter-day Saint effort was we can create beautiful music. Mm -hmm. There were other elements of Utah that were brought. There was grain and there was fruit as well. But what emerged out of that, and I think what is memorable, is that the benighted saints were capable of producing great art. Mm -hmm. And that is a legacy, I think, that we still have with us. It has roots back in the revelations of Joseph Smith, the NC-88, that we are to seek learning out of the best books. And books would include music. I love that response. And I I think that what the saints felt confident with was, as you suggest, being a representative of a rural territory that could grow things and bottle things and so on. But it was bold and had a a hint of bravado and obviously cultural surprise for the onlookers in the Midwest who were onlookers from around the world, really, that here was high culture coming out of what people would think was, aside from what they thought of Mormons uh, from a moral or uh, personality even point of view, that they were, as you say, able to suddenly enter at a different level or in a different sphere of achievement than people expected or predicted. And this was all going on in spades in Utah for many years, and people just didn't know it. And so we were sort of reverse immigrants going back into the U.S., and saying, here's what we've been doing while we were away. Well, we know that they do well, but Michael, could you tell us a little bit about how well they did in the competition and what that meant for them? Yeah, you know, President Woodruff and some other church leaders and some judges and some observers felt that the choir actually should have taken first place out of the four. There there were the four choirs, the two Scranton choirs, the Salt Lake Tabernacle Choir and the the Case Reserve Ohio Choir. The Case Reserve Ohio Choir just didn't do very well at all. They had pitch problems. They just weren't prepared. So they were sort of out of the running. And I feel that the Scranton rivalry was so strong, they sort of split the vote and enabled the Salt Lake Tabernacle Choir to take second place. Now, the reason the Salt Lake Choir couldn't take first place even though President Woodruff and others were saying, oh, they were biased against the choir because the judges wanted a Welsh choir to take first place and so on. You know, Evan Stevens wrote a long letter, a powerful letter, uh, sent it to the Deseret News, who published it, defending the judges and essentially saying, we are honored to have taken second place. Honored to be in the competition to begin with, but to be in second place amongst these others was quite something. There were two prizes offered, the first prize of $5,000, second prize of $1,000. That they took second was pretty amazing. It was a tremendous honor and they learned a lot from it. And that was, again, something that Professor Stevens really valued was what the choir learned from this experience and that it showed them, here's things we need to do to get better. And that pursuit of excellence is really important. And I think that's a lot of the missionary appeal. (laughs) 
President Woodruff, the first presidency actually in 1895, you know, write a letter to the choir. They say, here's the things we want the choir to do. You are missionaries of the church. That's where it's made explicit at that time. And yet they say, we want you to spread this good music through the world because it itself is a kind of spiritual power. Well, thank you so much for that, Michael. And they obviously did a fantastic job. Yes. Despite the odds and <laughs> the, the circumstances. Let's just hear the short extract from the book where we hear President Cannon's point of view. Later, when the results were announced, the Tabernacle Choir took second place, finishing only half a point behind the winner. One of the judges said the Saints should have won the competition, yet President Cannon believed the choir had achieved something greater. As a missionary enterprise, it is likely to be a success, he noted, for it will give thousands of people the opportunity of learning a little truth about us. Before we move on to another topic in the book, I think, like I mentioned, the World Fair was exciting to me, and it was really neat to learn about what else was going on at the fair, especially as far as Utah was concerned. There was a Congress of Representative Women that Emmeline Wells had the opportunity to speak at, that she was really well received. And then there was a Utah pavilion, a building that had different things that represented Utah. So it's a very neat chapter, I think, for our readers. So switching over to another major theme of this chapter is that Heber J. Grant is asked to go to the East Coast to secure some loans to help the church come out of a financial crisis. And it was a really significant financial crisis at this time. And Jed, we would love to know more from you. Why is the church in such a financial crisis? And why was Heber J. Grant the one to represent the church in securing more loans. Sure. So why was the church in such a financial crisis? We know that the church has an annual tithing revenue. By 1893, that tithing revenue had shrunk considerably. Much of the reason for that is that the U.S. government passed punitive legislation against the church that stripped its power to hold financial assets in excess of $50,000. And when it became clear that the federal government was seizing property from the church, the saints, many of them, stopped paying tithing. They couldn't be confident that their tithes would be held for the sacred purpose that, that they wished to pay it. And so the tithing revenue had dipped. And we know as Latter-day Saints, we remember that Lorenzo Snow brought us back to our senses at the end of the decade by reemphasizing the law of tithing. In addition to this, the church had considerable property, but this was non-liquid property. These were not assets that they could just turn into cash anytime. And so in 1893, there was a financial panic uh, across the nation that affected really the entire Western world. It was the most severe depression outside of a, the Great Depression that the United States has ever seen. So the church was affected because it was almost impossible to get cash at the time in the summer of 1893. And so if your assets are tied up in property, you're not going to be able to get the cash you had. Moreover, the church had debts. They had debts that had accumulated by investing in various businesses to try and give the saints employment. 
So the church was unable to pay these debts. And Apostle Grant was sent east. Why him? Well, there were two Latter-day Saints at the time who were extremely well-connected in the financial sector of New York. One was George Hugh Cannon, who was in the First Presidency, and the other was Heber J. Grant. Uh, Heber J. Grant was an insurance man. He owned his own insurance company in Utah, which was the largest fire insurance company in the territory. He also was the president of the State Bank of Utah. There were a handful of banks in Salt Lake City and the State Bank, as well as the church's own institution, Zion Savings Bank. Those two banks were the most powerful LDS institutions of finance at the time. And so Heber J. Grant had gone east many times, had negotiated loans for his bank or for his insurance business. So he knew many people in New York. At the same time that Heber went to New York, George Q. Cannon went to London to try and seek financial help. He was unsuccessful in London. And so really everything fell on Heber J. Grant's shoulders to try and negotiate money to save the church's banks. That's really interesting. Thank you, Jed. One of the questions I have is around John Claffin, if that's how his name is pronounced. He proposes this 20% commission, which to me seems incredibly high. Are those terms common? Was this representative of the time or was the church just in such a desperate state? Right. So in the summer of 1893, interest rates rose to the highest levels that they had ever seen in this country because if cash is scarce and you're in need of some kind of liquid asset, then anyone who was able to provide that could command a huge interest rate. And so interest rates had crept up, but 20%, the fee that Claflin charged the church was definitely exorbitant. But there were other similar rates going around at the time The church had negotiated loans prior to this time for 10%, 8%, and 20% was an eyebrow-raising loan, no question about it. The First Presidency was not entirely pleased. They were relieved that Apostle Grant was able to get so much money in order to keep the banks afloat, but they did question him initially, did you really have to pay 20%? And he said it was the only possible deal that could be done. Let me add that Claflin was someone that Heber J. Grant knew. He had had some association with him in the past. Claflin was a dry goods owner. He owned a huge store in New York that traded hundreds of thousands of dollars every year. And so he was in a position to float a loan to the church. But the fact that Heber was looking for Claflin and in a city the size of New York City, that Claflin was not at his store and Heber was able to essentially miss the proper stop, then get off and go to another store and there was Claflin. It's a miracle. It clearly is a miracle. He was down to an hour or two only, after which it would have been impossible to wire the money to Salt Lake City because it was a Saturday and the banks were closing at noon. So really a beautiful example of how the Lord can work in our lives and even despite our missteps. I mean, we point out in the story that Heber was reading a newspaper and that he went past the stop that he had intended, but in reality, he had to miss the stop in order to find Claflin in another store. It's funny how these things work out sometimes. 
Well, Jed, this was a very stressful part of the chapter for me, <laughs> but it's amazing to see how everything really worked out. And we just want to know, what did this loan do for the church? Well, in the short term, it allowed the church's two most important financial institutions to keep their doors open. I think we mentioned somewhere in the chapter that the costs of a bank closing their doors can be catastrophic because what happens, of course, we know anyone who's watched uh, It's a Wonderful Life knows that when a bank closes its doors and investors are looking for their money, I mean, they panic. And then they come to the bank and they say, where's my money? There's lawsuits if you can't provide it. And then there's a loss of confidence. Now, I think in the long term, what could have happened if those banks had closed is then the church has to default on Eastern loans, loans with outsiders, financial institutions in New York. And if it does that, then it loses its credibility. It loses trust with those outsiders. As we were trying to show in the chapter, there's this interesting juxtaposition with the Tabernacle Choir story. You are gaining trust at the moment that you could be losing trust with the outside world. And of course, this exorbitant loan saved the day. So it didn't come to that. But this is one of the themes of this volume is that the church over the course of the 50 to 60 years that the book covers, that they gain in the eyes of the world. They gain in financial status and power. They gain in artistic credibility, as we see in this first chapter. Educationally, they gain through the graduates that they produce who go out into the world and have successful careers. And of course, they gain in the quality of the families that they raise, which involves a mother and a father together in most cases. And so uh, this chapter, I think, foreshadows many of the themes that we're going to see over the course of the book, the saints going out and having success in the world. I think that's a brilliant point to turn our attention to John and Leah Widso. We all loved Anna Widso and John in volume two, but here we're going to, to see a relationship form between John and Leah Dunford. I love that sentence in the chapter. John Whitsoe was in love with Leah Dunford, but he did not want to admit it. <laughs> so perhaps you could just tell us a little bit about John and Leah and why we are coming back to John here in volume three. Sure. I'd be happy to talk a little bit about the Whitsoes and the Dunfords. So as we were crafting volume two of Saints, the question emerged, how do we want to end this book? What is the note that we want to strike at the end? And we were looking around for a character who could encapsulate the major themes of this period. And probably the largest one is the gathering that we sent out missionaries to the world, mainly Europe, but other parts of the world, the South Pacific as well. And then we called those converts to come to the Great Basin to gather to Zion. And Anna Witso was a product of that movement, the gathering movement. She learned about the church in Trondheim, Norway, her hometown. She was a widow with two young boys. And she was getting one of her son's shoes repaired when the cobbler left a tract about the church in the repaired shoes. And she read the tract, and it turned out that the cobbler was a Latter-day Saint. 
So she converts and brings her sons to Zion, and they settle in Logan, Utah in the early 1880s. And we tell this story in Volume 2. Those who have listened or read Volume 2 may recall it. And Anna, she's a very faithful woman. She raises her children, the two sons, to respect the church, to hold to its teachings. And she also feels passionately about educating them. And John, the oldest son, emerges as a star student. And so in 1891, his principal at Brigham Young College in Logan, this is an institution that is no longer in existence, but it was an LDS academy in Logan. So his principal, Joseph Marion Tanner, gets John and a handful of other bright students and says, why don't we go to Harvard? Why don't we go, uh, we'll move to Boston and apply to Harvard. You had to take admissions exams at the time. And you had to be proficient in Greek and Latin. And John had had a little bit of those languages, but most of the others had not. So Joseph Marion Tanner said, let's go to Cambridge, Massachusetts, and we'll set up shop and you can study Greek and Latin and pass these entrance exams and get in. John promptly does so. While he's in Boston, he meets Susie Young Gates, the daughter of Brigham Young. She comes out to take a summer course at Harvard. Women are not admitted to Harvard at this time, but she takes this class through Radcliffe that is part of the, the Harvard Annex. And she meets John and thinks immediately of her daughter, Leah, home in Salt Lake and says, you know, you have to go down to the Photoshop, take a picture of yourself and send it to me. And she describes John a classic line from volume two, where she says his brain is bigger than James Talmage's. So we end the volume with that story. And there's a sort of a cliffhanger because John has a crisis of faith at the end of volume two. And we knew that we would resolve this crisis at the beginning of volume three. And so this is the context that we find ourselves in. And Leah then goes out the following year, despite the financial panic, her mother is able to actually mortgage their home in order to provide money for Leah to take this trip. She's very eager for John and Leah to meet. And I don't want to give away the whole story, but the significance of this relationship, it's many fold, but one of the most important ones I don't think people recognize is in John, we have a Scandinavian convert, second generation Latter-day Saint. In Leah, we have the product of plural marriage through her grandmother, Lucy Bigelow, who was a wife of Brigham Young. And so what we have is Leah would not exist were it not for plural marriage. And then John would not be in the church had it not been for the faithfulness of his mother and the missionary effort that goes into tiny towns in Scandinavia like Trondheim. And so their falling in love is the most unlikely of things, but of course happens because of the restored gospel. And we have this phrase in the Book of Mormon, raising seed up to me, where both of these families were extremely faithful, and that faithfulness then becomes something that attracts one to another. And of course, they end up sticking with the church over the course of their lives. Well, Jed, we're going to follow John and Leah throughout the volume. But why don't you tell us a little bit about how we're able to tell their story? Where do we get this information from? Late in his life, John Witzow wrote a memoir about his life, an autobiography. And that forms really the spine of the story. He does talk about having a crisis of faith at Harvard, but he does not tell us when that occurred. 
And he speaks only in vague terms about how he overcame it. And fortunately for us, we have letters that were preserved that passed between John and his mother, Anna, who is back in Salt Lake City. But they're written in not only Norwegian, but an old Norwegian script called Dano-Norwegian, which as you might guess, it's a, an amalgam between Danish and Norwegian. And for a long time, I was just so fascinated by these letters. Of course, I don't read this language. And I looked on them. I had just, just salivated over them, thinking, how are we going to get these translated? And I tried various avenues, and it just wasn't working out. And then we ended up meeting Sarah Reed, who was a young history professor at BYU, had a PhD from University of Wisconsin, and she was able to read Dano-Norwegian. I mean, there was so much translation to do that I actually got a call from John's great-great-grandson who told me about another person who knew Dano-Norwegian, and it happened to be his nephew, a man named Michael Knudsen, who also got his PhD from Wisconsin and also had facility in these languages. And they were able to unlock the content. Anytime there's a footnote that speaks of John to Anna or Anna to John, those are all letters in Dano-Norwegian. And so the quotes that emerge out of those letters, we couldn't have written the scene without having those letters translated. I just feel so incredibly blessed when I think of being able to meet Sarah and Michael and how even Michael, the fact that he's a third great-grandson of, of John Woodso, I get emotional thinking about it, that he was able to translate his ancestors' letters that were waiting, literally waiting for saints to use, uh, that no one else had been able to use prior to his time. It, it just is a beautiful connection for me to think about. Thank you, Jed. Well, Michael, it's been so fun having you and your perspective and expertise here on the episode today. We would just love to know, do you have any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners about what you took away from the chapter? I think uh, maybe two things I have to say about it. One is this title, A Brighter and a Better Day, because it's, it's sort of tapping into what this nation and uh, maybe the world itself, that there's something about to happen as we move into the next century. It happens at the end of every century, looking forward to a new century and a sense of renewal that the saints have, that things are going to get better. The chapter frames that so well. It's quite beautiful, I think, the way it's expressed. But I, I wanted to say one other thing about the chapter, too. I read it and I thought, boy, they're sure talking about money a lot <laughs> in this. And I think that's a really important thing for readers to ponder. The problem people have in reading history is that they think that the past is like the present, just older. And that's not the case, and it's certainly not the case with the church, because people like to talk about the church of today. We think about the power economically, among other things, that the church has and the self-sufficiency of it. But it's important to really take people through this and say, this was earned. It was the result of prophetic, we might say, raising up 
of the right people to bring us out of that. And I think people need to be shown that, that we need to talk about money because the church wasn't just being persecuted at a doctrinal level or ignored at a cultural level, but it was really being escorted out of civilization at a financial level. And that we had, uh, as the term sometimes used, the genius of the priesthood that came forward to sort of make that change. And so that's part of this brighter and better day. I hope that we always stay prosperous and live in a continually brighter and better day. Well, Michael, Jed, thank you both very much for coming on the podcast today and grateful for all of your insights and comments on this first chapter of Saints Volume 3. And we'd love to point the listeners and the readers of Saints to additional church history topics on things that they might want to explore a little bit more. For example, church finances, the Tabernacle Choir, and the Columbian Exposition of 1893, which is how this chapter began. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you. Until next time, I'm James Perry. And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks so much for listening.